0: So, we, we just love to take the opportunity at Jubilee here to just honor people. And, you know, there are some people that, there are some people who are gifted and there are others who are people that are gifts. So, there are gifted people and there are people that are gifts. And I just want to say to you that Simon is a gift to us he's a gift to us he's a gift to the body of christ and we we prayed Simon in long before he knew it we said lord will you give us a teacher amongst us and Simon is a teacher and he came with Becky who's a prophetic pastor as well so we got two for the price of one what an amazing couple we love them we love their family and Simon we just want to receive what you've got for us today we know that you've got a message from god and you've even got teacher-like illustrations i trust you're not gonna use me in any of the demonstration i'm slightly nervous about that but can we just welcome simon as he comes to speak to us
1: good morning everyone If you've got your Bibles with you, it would be great to open them at this point um, to Luke chapter twenty-three. And just while you're doing that, I mean, thank you to Rob. But five five years now it's been since uh, we arrived at Jubilee, and um, and it's it's all very well praying for a gift, as Rob phrased it, um, but you've then got to receive that gift. And, uh, and that's what happened to us. And that is testimony to you. Wow. Um, and, uh, and so thank you. And I will keep on saying thank you. Um, because we will be forever grateful that you welcomed us in as part of the family. And now we're part of the furniture. Um, so And that's a good thing. Um, so this morning... I want us to spend some time looking at the cross. And Darren and the team did a wonderful job of helping us to do that already this morning. And my focus as I talk this morning is not going to be theological. I'm not going to kind of try and plumb the depths of the significance of the atonement and that kind of thing. What we're going to do, we'll save that for another time. There's nothing wrong with that. But today, I feel really stirred that we should look at the narrative in the gospel and just stop and look at it. And so we're going to pause. We're going to linger for quite a long time on these few verses in the hope, really, that the, the magnitude of those events on Good Friday And what Jesus achieved really kind of sink into our hearts afresh. I think the cross can become so very, very familiar to us. Every year, Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, hooray, and we're off and running again. So easy to let it slip by. and. Sometimes I wonder if the biggest mystery about Easter is just how they figure out the date of when it happens each year. Well, actually, actually, we should allow ourselves, open ourselves up to be shocked by the cross, to be stunned by it, to be stopped in our tracks by it. Because it's only in that place that we will then see the magnificence of his grace towards us and the love which he demonstrates so clearly on the cross. It's when we draw near to the cross that we see our saviour in full technicolour. As we see the nail prints in his hands, as we see the wounds on his back, as we see the crown of thorns on his head. That's when we see him as he truly is, the lamb who was slain, and now sits in glory forever and ever and ever. So that's where we're going this morning. So I hope that's okay. Um, we've got, hopefully, um, a, the reading, the passage, will be here. So if you want to follow in your Bibles, it's Luke chapter 23, it's verses 33 to 49. And uh, this is the actual Bible being read to us in the NIV translation, but with pictures. So, um, over to the technical team.
2: When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. When he had said this, he breathed his last. (laughs) The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things.
1: Jesus, we draw near to you now. These events of Good Friday were so significant, so earth-changing, so history-shaping. And so we come with a careful approach to stand before your cross, to gaze upon our Saviour who was crucified. Would you guide our thoughts this morning? Would you guide our words, guide my words as we look at this story? And would you stir our hearts afresh? Would you speak to us by your spirit? Would you draw us closer to you? May you fill our vision. May you be magnified this morning. And challenge us again. Challenge us again with the message of your cross. And may we fall more deeply in love with you, Jesus. Amen. So we're going to look for a while at Jesus. And uh, I think what we're going to do is try and notice three things about him. And then we're going to consider Four different groups of people and how they responded to him. Which, if you're counting, makes seven points. It's not as bad as it sounds. So the first thing I think that we need to notice is that the saviour is innocent. On the Thursday after Palm Sunday, Jesus is betrayed and he's captured in that garden of Gethsemane. And I'd encourage you this week to spend some time reading the gospel stories and reading them slowly and pausing after each event. And Gethsemane is a special event. But Jesus is captured and then he's carted off on Thursday night to be tried, allegedly tried, by the religious rulers. It's a legal trial because it's after dark. So the next morning, they quickly reconvene and say, yeah, 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 rubber stamp, he's guilty. And then they take him to Pilate, the Roman governor of Palestine. And Luke is very, very careful in his account of Jesus' trials, uh, the, the interactions with Pilate. And he details Pilate's decisions. So earlier in chapter 23, in verse 4, we read, um, Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Very clear. Jesus is innocent. They then kind of say, well, that's not really the same conclusion we arrived at, and we'd like you to change your mind. Um, and so, uh, Pilate sends Jesus off to Herod because he realizes that actually Jesus was kind of operating in that area where Herod, who's the kind of Jewish political ruler, um, he has jurisdiction of that area. So he sends Jesus off to, to Pilate. Pilate mocks him a bit, asks him some questions. and Herod, sorry, does that and then sends him back to Pilate. When he comes back, Pilate then says, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges you make against him. No, nor as Herod, for he has sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I'll punish him and release him. So for the second time, Pilate says he's innocent. And still they badger Pilate to find him guilty. And so in verse twenty two of chapter twenty three we read, And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man does, uh, had done? I find in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore I will punish him and release him. Four times Jesus is declared innocent by the official authorities, three times by Pilate the Roman authority, once by Herod, the Jewish authority. Whatever the character faults and flaws of these two men, Pilate and Herod, whatever the weakness of their respective characters, there is no issue at this juncture in their legal judgment. They are absolutely spot on. Jesus has done nothing wrong. Jesus is innocent. And Luke is very careful to set it up. All these times, he's innocent, he's innocent, he's innocent. And so as we go into this scene that we've just watched of Jesus being crucified, we've got to remember that the person who is being put to death there is a man who has been found legally innocent. He is guilt free. There is no reason for him to be on that cross. So that's the first thing that we should notice, I think, this morning about the Saviour, <laughs> is that he's innocent. The second thing is that he's abused. After his arrest in Gethsemane and his illegal trial, the abuse begins. Physical, mental, emotional abuse. Those Jewish leaders declare him Guilty. And then at the end of chapter 22, we read in verses 63 and onwards, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. And the torture continued, which we'll look at in a bit. But by the time that Jesus arrived at the cross, I don't know about you, but I cannot, I cannot imagine the pain and the agony that he is in. I just cannot even begin to get anywhere close to it. And I think sometimes that I'm in in danger of skipping over it. And that Jesus somehow becomes a sort of Teflon-coated superhero. And the blows kind of bounce off him a bit anyway, like Mr. Incredible. That he's somehow able, because he's God, he's somehow able to absorb pain in a different way from me. It's not right. It's not right. Jesus is a man, fully human flesh and blood, who felt pain. He bled real blood, his skin fractured and punctured like any of us. And he arrived at the cross, an absolute bloody mess. Just think for a moment. He was humiliated beyond belief. Stripped of his clothes. Matthew, in his account, talks of the the soldiers spitting at him, slapping him with their fists. Sorry, slapping him, hitting him with their fists. Doing this mock worship of him where they put a cloak over him and then bow down to him. Relentlessly mocked, utterly humiliated. He was beaten. The the soldiers beat him, slapped him, hit him. They placed something like this on his head, a crown of thorns, which they rammed onto his head. And then while it was on his head, it says in one account that they took sticks and they beat him over the head with it so that this would be forced in even further. He was whipped. He would have been tied with his hands around a a whipping post, made to kneel, so then they could lash him. And it would have been with something even more horrific looking than this one. Where this has got nine ends to it, and embedded in the leather thongs, would have been little bits of stone or metal, that then as they whip him, those would have sunk in and gripped the flesh. So then as the soldier withdrew the whip for the next lash, it would have torn away his skin and left lacerations. So vicious was this type of whipping that some criminals never actually made it to the cross because they'd have died because of the whipping. Would have led to serious blood loss, dehydration, immense and intolerable pain. And when they finished doing that with him, they made him walk through the streets. They tried to make him carry the crossbeam of his cross, but um, he couldn't manage it. And so he would have been dragged, really, crawled up through the Via Dolorosa, through the main street, through the city. Romans did it as an example to those around so that no one else would think of kind of any sort of insurrection or crime. And they would have made their way out to the place of the skull, Golgotha. It was called that because it was like a rocky outcrop that looked like a skull. On the main way into the city, again as a deterrent, and that's where he'd have been crucified. And at that point, he would have been stretched out on this crossbeam, the patibulum it was called, with his arms sort of arched in a V shape. And then nails driven through his wrists in between the two bones so that it didn't tear too much, but avoiding an artery so he didn't just bleed out because they wanted the pain to continue. And once his arms were attached, that would have taken at least two of them, one to kneel down on the inner bit of his elbow to hold him in place as the other one hit the nails through. Then his he would his legs would have been stretched out on the or well, they'd probably have hauled him up at that point. And then as he's hanging just by his wrist, they'd have then levered his body up a bit, bent his knees, crossed over his ankles and nailed through there to hold him in place. So that there was enough. Leverage in his knees to allow him to lift himself up so that he could breathe. Because if your arms are like that, you can't breathe. So you have to open your lungs up. Most crucifixion victims died from suffocation in the end. So in, in immense pain, but they actually die from not being able to get enough air. Which is why we read they come around later on and break the legs. So they can't lift themselves up anymore. It just finishes that end a bit more quickly. The Saviour, our Saviour, our Jesus, was abused beyond belief. My imagination, my vocabulary get nowhere close. I hope yours get closer. But this is what happened to him. And I think that's the second thing Luke wants us to notice is that this Jesus is hanging on the cross so cruelly, racked with pain and then in that moment we notice an even more amazing thing and that is that the Saviour forgives. The Saviour forgives. You see, at that very moment When he's hanging there in agony, he calls out in verse 34, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. The the depth, the extent of his grace, of his compassion, of his love, of his forgiveness, just beyond words. And as he's forgiving them, we see the soldiers gambling for his clothes. Probably would have been a team of four. And so they divide up his clothes into four different lots and cast, cast lots for them, play dice for them. Looking for a bit of entertainment as their victims die. Because what else is there to do? Their work's done. They just have to now wait. For nature to take its course. But Jesus had a tunic that was woven of one piece. And so that was like the special thing. So they were trying to win that in their game. Just catch the irony of this. Soldiers at the foot of the cross. Gambling for the small gain of a crucified man's cloak. While on offer on that cross was an eternal inheritance. Draws even more of a contrast. And unlike the soldiers who were just looking out for themselves, Jesus asked for forgiveness. (coughs) It's utterly astonishing. To my mind. And I think that he said it again and again. Because it's the way Luke phrases it in verse 34, it says, And Jesus was saying, I think he was saying, Father, forgive as the beatings happened. He was saying, Father, forgive as the nails were driven in. I think he was saying, Father, forgive as the mocking continued. Father, forgive. Father, forgive. Father, forgive. Father, forgive. I don't know if you've ever been mistreated and if you have, what your thoughts were. When it has happened to me, I just want to lash out, (laughs) want to seek revenge, want to gain the upper hand in some way, want to see the perpetrators have their comeuppance. How different Jesus is. How different. How awesome, Jesus. I mean, how can he do this? How can he call out to the Father to forgive those who've abused him so horrifically, so brutally during the previous eight hours? And knowing that the Father will rush to forgive. The Father will be willing to do this. Jesus prays for those who sinned directly against him. For him, the Lord's prayer isn't just a thing that he can recite by heart. Actually, this is something that he believes. (coughs) Forgive them who trespass against me. And what's, again, interesting in Luke's narrative Is that after Jesus asks for forgiveness, it's after that that the mocking continues. Just read on. The people are looking in verse 35 and then the rulers are sneering. He saved others. The soldiers are mocking, verse 36 and verse 37. Then the criminals join in and hurl abuse at Jesus. This is after he said, forgive them. It's amazing, really, that there is no qualification for this forgiveness to be poured out. Jesus just seems to spread it around. When he says, Father, forgive them, who do you think he's talking to? He's talking to, God. Who do you think he's talking about in the passage? It's not clear to me. Is it the soldiers? Is it the crowd? Is it the rulers? Is it those who've kind of conspired to crucify him? Forgiveness is offered, you see, to all. And that's what's on offer on that Good Friday. So, as we look at this cross, we see a saviour who is innocent. A saviour who's been abused beyond imagination. But incredibly is able to offer Forgiveness for all of them. And that demands a response. That Saviour, that crucified Jesus, demands a response. And in the passage, I think there are four different responses of people who look and see what's going on. There's no way, you see, that you could have been in Jerusalem on that Good Friday and not noticed that something different was happening. I mean, for one thing, it went dark at midday. So that's kind of unusual. Some of your faces seem to think it's not that unusual. It is unusual. Even in that part of the world, it's unusual for it to go dark at midday for three hours. And we can explain it, you know, a eclipse or whatever. Yeah, maybe. Fine, I'm happy with eclipses. But the very fact that that happened at the moment that Jesus was on the cross, that is miraculous. Let's not try and write away these things. And accompanying the physical sign, and there were earthquakes and people rising from the dead and all that kind of stuff happening as well, but not in Luke's account, so I can't talk about it. (laughs) There was a spiritual sign. The veil of the temple was torn in two. You see, inside the temple was something called the holy place. So people were allowed inside the outer courts, inside the temple surround. And then there was the holy place. And only the priests were allowed to enter. Inside the holy place was the holy of holies. And that was divided from the holy place with a, this veil. And only the high priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies. And he was only allowed in once every year. You weren't even allowed to look inside the Holy of Holies. You know, we've been talking about the presence of God recently. Well, the Jews believed that that's where God resided, in that most holy place. Couldn't go in there. Couldn't even look. Now, what's interesting is that the ninth hour, so it went dark from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, verse 44 tells us, it's about three o'clock in the afternoon. And that was the time, around about that time, that the evening sacrifices started to happen in the temple. And one of the things that they reckon happened during the evening sacrifice is that the priest would quote from Psalm 31. Verse 5, which is, Into your hands I commit my spirit. So at the time when the evening sacrifice was meant to be happening, Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, was dying on the cross, uttering the same words. And having said that, verse 46, Jesus breathed his last. He cries out with conviction, with full assurance. He commits himself into the hands of the Father. And following all that suffering, all the pain, all the agony, all the hurt, the separation, the anguish, he cries out in a loud voice, And he dies. He actually dies. This is really, really important. Really important. He dies. The one who is the creator of all things. In whom everything holds together. The one who brought people back to life both physically and spiritually. That one, he's the one who dies. The one who has lived from eternity past, always been alive, always been in existence, always dwelt in glory with the Father until these 30-odd years. He's the one who dies. God on a cross dies. Or as Luke says, breathes his last. And by the time this happens, I don't know whether you noticed in the narrative, but. No longer are there any sneering rulers around. No longer are there any gambling soldiers or mocking bystanders. They've all faded from view. But there are some other people who Luke tells us about. So let's talk about the crowd first. You see, the crowds see... What's happening? And they despair. They've been there throughout. Verse 35, the people stood by looking on. And then verse 48, and all the crowd who came together, wait for it, this should horrify you. And the crowd who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return to their homes, beating their breasts. Some of these crowds would have seen the public trial, would have seen the reaction, the declaration of Pilate that he was innocent, would have seen the brutal beating of Jesus, would have followed him through the streets to the cross, would have watched the what happened there at Calvary. Some of them may even have been shouting just nine hours earlier for him to be crucified, joining with the crowd, getting caught up in the euphoria of festival week. And now it's clear to them that all doesn't seem right. It's not all quite as it seemed. And so they leave the scene, heading home. I have no doubt that many of them would have lost sleep that night. With the events of the day running through their minds. The horrors of it. The clear injustice of it all. And no doubt it would be the talk of the next day. The next day was the Sabbath. The Sabbath of Passover week. That's a special Sabbath. They celebrate the Passover on the Thursday. And then on the Saturday, they rest and live in the good of that. But as they leave this scene here, they're beating their breasts. Despair, mourning, remorse, recognizing injustice, grief, I don't know, a whole mixture of things. And sometimes when people are confronted by the magnitude of their sin, in front of the outrageous grace and forgiveness of the Saviour, they can't handle it and have to leave. Don't know what to do with it. And they leave. But the message of the cross is actually, you don't need to leave in despair. (laughs) It doesn't have to end like that. Anyway, that's the first group, the crowds. So they see what happened and they despair. And they leave. The second group is Jesus' acquaintances. Verse 49, all his acquaintances and the women who had accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. So you've got this group of people who've been traveling around with Jesus and they stand far off, watching, watching things unfold over there. They must have been in shock. There's no way they could have anticipated fully what was going to happen. And they had plenty of things to ponder. The implications for them were potentially huge. Where would they now go now that Jesus was dead? Remember, they travelled round with him. So, what now? How could he even be dead? This is a guy who healed everyone. Who raised people from the dead. What would the authorities do now? Would they round them up? Would they all go through the same sort of kangaroo court? If they killed Jesus when he was innocent, what's in store for them? What I find really interesting as well is that these women were there. Luke talks about the women a lot. What were they doing there? They should not have been there. The Friday was preparation day for the Sabbath, this special Sabbath in Passover week, festival Sabbath. Their job, I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, this is just culturally what was happening. Their job was to be preparing the food for those celebrations. No work was allowed to be done, not just on the Sabbath, but as soon as sunset happened. Six o'clock on Friday, that's it. No more work. So if the food isn't prepped then, they're not eating the next day. And where were they? They were stood at a distance watching the events on the cross. There's a kind of cultural shock in the verse. That we kinda miss. And this group of people then, people who knew Jesus, people who'd seen what he was about, they linger at a distance. Do you find it amazing? Minutes after. The way is made open into the very holy of holies. God has never been more accessible than he is now. And yet they linger at a distance. They stay far off. haven't yet understood what is happening. The third group are the thieves. This is going back a bit because this happened just before Jesus died. In fact, before it went dark. But These thieves sum up everyone who ever lived. You're either one criminal or you're the other criminal. You're a criminal because you've broken God's law. That's the first thing. And then either... You cry out to Jesus for grace and mercy, or you don't. And that's it. I could preach a whole sermon on that. I'm not going to. I'm going to restrain myself. But we need to notice it. We need to notice the reaction of these two people to this crucified Saviour. One declares him to be innocent. Notice that again. Innocent. So he says, this man's done nothing wrong. In verse 41. While the other one mocked him. One recognised his need of a saviour, the other one didn't. One asked for forgiveness, the other didn't. And so one received the promise of a life. While the other one, we assume, didn't. Whether he repented later, we don't know. The account doesn't say. We can but hope for him. Sorry, the clock threw me. It's ten past eleven. We're good for time. (laughs) In a Scottish village, there was a doctor who was noted both for his professionalism, his professional skill, if you like, and his devotion to Jesus. And uh, after his death, his books were examined. And uh, several entries had in red ink written across them, forgiven, too poor to pay. So he died, got his books out. His wife wasn't in quite the same sort of mindset. And so uh, she decided that these debts should be settled. And so she filed a suit in court and took it to court. And uh, while the case was being heard, the judge asked her, is this your husband's handwriting in red? She said, yes, it is. Then, said the judge, not a tribunal in the land can obtain money from those he has forgiven. It's done. Once a debt is forgiven, it's forgiven, full stop. Once a debt is written over, too poor to pay, forgiven, that's it. Nothing can reverse it. That is the outrageousness of the grace that we are in benefit of. That is the unbelievable nature of this love which God has lavished on us. And the one thief experienced that. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Debt cancelled, forgiven. You're with me forever. He walked into his inheritance. You see, when we stand and look at the cross, there is no need for us to remain unforgiven. No need. But the thieves decided. And the third, no, the fourth uh, reaction Response that I want to talk about is the centurion. The centurion saw this and he declared. So in verse 47, it says, Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Notice again, the thing that strikes him is the innocence of Jesus. And he begins to praise. You notice that? It's not just he says, oh yeah, this man was innocent. What a travesty of justice. Mm. He says, he began praising God. What a model for us. To praise at the foot of the cross. And so, these groups of people gather around the cross. You've got God's chosen people. The, the crowd would have be been mainly Jewish. You've got Gentiles, this centurion. it was a Roman. Didn't know anything of the grace of God. Yet he's the first one to praise. You've got these women who should have had other tasks to be doing. You've got the criminal underclass alongside him. You've got people who've hung out with Jesus for years. And they all respond. They all respond. Some of them see what happens and walks away, despairing. Some of them see what's happening and just stay far off. Some of them see what's happening and throw themselves on his grace and mercy. And some of them see what's happening and start to praise. You know... This Easter, you have that same message. That's what you carry. You carry the message of a crucified saviour. and That will demand a response from whoever you share it with. And all of these responses are valid. Not all of them are good. All of them are valid responses. And so expect a mixed reaction when you share it. And I know there's another bit to the story, but even though it's only quarter past 11, I can't go into it. But you're here next week. And that's important as well. But let's spend some time focusing on the cross, remembering the extent of his sacrifice to us. We're going to worship again now. Um, Darren, if... To bring the band back up. but why why don't the band are organizing themselves? Why don't we just stand and our leaders in some prayer? Let's just uh, close our eyes. And why don't you respond to the crucified Saviour? He is central in view now. What are your responses? Have you allowed circumstance to come in and cause you to despair? And you look at the cross and then walk away and think well so what good is that or do you look at the cross and it's just become a bit distanced a bit familiar there's an invitation to come close now I'm sure that for many of us in the room I know that for many of us in the room We have reacted like the second thief and said, we need your mercy, Jesus. But if you haven't done that, you need to hear that there is free forgiveness on offer for you today. And you can come on in. You can draw near to that Saviour, near to that Jesus. And maybe it's that you're in a place to praise to praise this crucified one, this one who did it all for us, this one that death could ultimately not hold, and yet he went through the suffering for us. And so as we worship now, just draw near, let him fill your gaze once again. Enjoy, enjoy his presence. Enjoy his intimacy. Jesus, we come to you now. We come to you now and ask, would you Reveal yourself afresh as our saviour and friend, the one who has suffered so much, who is in order to defeat and conquer death.